Welcome to the June edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have two airway-themed papers to discuss. The first investigating transesophageal ultrasound imaging of the larynx with Dr. Jonathan Cheatham, and the second looking at the correlation of asthma severity with heat and airborne pollen concentrations with Dr. Michaela Belloni. Dr. Jonathan Cheatham is an Associate Professor of Large Animal Surgery at Cornell University. His research interests focus on restoring function in the larynx, nasopharynx and trachea using tissue engineering, reinnovation, and functional electrical stimulation techniques. He's kindly joined us to discuss his most recent paper titled Transesophageal Ultrasound and Computer Tomographic Assessment of the Equine Cricoretinoid Dorsalis Muscle relationship between muscle geometry and exercising laryngeal function. So hi Jonathan, thanks for agreeing to chat with us today. You're here to discuss your recent paper in EVJ, which investigates the use of transesophageal ultrasound imaging um, to assess the morphology and function of the cricoretinoid dorsalis muscles in the larynx. Can you give us a quick overview of how the larynx functions um, and describe what muscles are activated during respiration and how recurrent laryngeal neuropathy affects these muscles. Hi, Rhiannon. Uh, thanks for having me on this EVJ podcast this morning. Uh, I can certainly do that. Um, so the, the recurrent laryngeal nerve has a pretty unusual uh, anatomy um, in all species, actually, uh, horses through dogs through people. Uh, and it comes with the vagus nerve down the neck uh, around the aortic um, arch, uh, left ventricular outflow tract, outflow tract, and then back up the neck. So it's extremely long. So in the horse, that's around uh, two meters on the left side, uh, and then it goes around the sub- first subclavian artery on the right side, and it's only around a meter and a half long. Um, and the nerve supplies all bar one of the intrinsic muscles of the larynx. Um, so there's one muscle that doesn't uh, innervate, but everything else it innervates, so it's responsible for both opening and closing of the larynx, so opening of the larynx during exercise, uh, in inhalation, uh, and then maximal opening during exercise, and then also closing the larynx during swallowing. Um, and we don't fully understand the etiology of recurrent laryngeal neuropathy, uh, which is a little bit surprising because we've known about the disease uh, for at least 100 years. Um, but what we think is the length of the nerve means that uh, external transport to the distal portion of the nerve is uh, abnormal, uh, and we certainly see a pattern of um, myelin loss. So the myelin, myelin sheath surrounding the axons uh, at the, throughout the nerve, but particularly at the, at the distal end of the nerve near to the muscle, uh, myelin is lost. Uh, axons are lost uh, as well. We don't quite know which of those is primary and which is secondary, um, but certainly both that, that pattern uh, goes on uh, together. Uh, and then we see muscle atrophy uh, of the intrinsic muscles of the larynx, uh, which control opening and closing. So how do you assess airway function during a standard exam? Do you use solely resting endoscopy, or do you use a mixture of modalities such as overground endoscopy or uh, alongside ultrasound imaging? Yep, so we use, a uh, good question, we use a, a whole range of uh, modalities. So a uh, good phys- physical examiner of the upper airway it's important to rule out um, signs of horners or uh, something affecting uh, nasal airflow. Um, also looking for scars at larynx for a previous 
uh, laryngoplasty or typhoid uh, incision. Uh, and then we use resting endoscopy as a, a real workhorse, a, a mainstay of the initial exam. Uh, and then 95 plus percent of horses uh, also have either an overground endoscopy or a treadmill endoscopy, depending on the uh, setting and type of horse. Uh, and then most of them will also have an ultrasound uh, examination performed as well. Um, nine out of 10 of those will be transcutaneous. And then for the horses, which, uh, so transcutaneous ultrasound for the horses in which we suspect uh, recurrent laryngeal or evidence of that based on rest, resting or overground uh, scope, we'll do a transesophageal ultrasound as well. Why are you interested in assessing the cricoretinoid dorsalis muscle in particular? And why use transesophageal as opposed to transcutaneous ultrasound? So we started, we're particularly interested in the cricoretinoid dorsalis uh, or CAD muscle because it's the muscle that's responsible solely for opening the airway during exercise, or during inhalation or during exercise. Um, uh, so that muscle uh, attaches to the um, arytenoid cartilage and, and cause abduction, so abduction, opening of the airway. Uh, and it's the only muscle responsible for doing that, and so that's the most profound effect in horses with a recurrent laryngeal neuropathy or aurora, otherwise known as auroras. Uh, we started off, so Heather Chalmers, who was, uh, did a lot of the early work on um, transcutaneous ultrasound in the larynx of the horse, a lot of very nice work uh, at uh, Cornell and Guelph, um, uh, initially looked at the lateralis muscle. Uh, that was a more straightforward window to image, uh, and then moved on to image the dorsalis um, which is possible with the transcutaneous approach, but we really wanted. Some, but you only get a very small, uh, fairly small portion of it, um, and it's harder to assess the uh, medial portion of the muscle belly. Uh, and we wanted an approach where we could directly look at the anatomy of the muscle um, and assess the whole thing. And that's why we started looking at transesophageal ultrasound. Can you talk us through the study design in this paper? Uh, sure. So we, we it was a two part design. One was very experimental and one was more of a field uh, study. Um, so in the first part, we looked at the ability of um, uh, CT, computed tomography, uh, to verify or quantify really the uh, anatomy, um, sorry, the, C, the volume of the CAD muscle. And we care about volume because we know muscle volume relates to force and so the ability to open the um, arytenoid cartilage. Uh, and we used a technique of um, where we reconstructed the uh, CAD muscle volume in a particular software package um, and then correlated that uh, with actual ex vivo uh, volumes. Um, the goal being we're knowing that standing uh, CT is coming and that's becoming much more widely spread uh, and wanted to uh, look at CT as the ability to detect changes in muscle volume over time uh, in the future. Uh, and then we looked at uh, transesophageal laryngeal ultrasound as well in, in a population of horses with a spectrum of laryngeal function. So these were uh, just over 100 horses, 112 horses, with uh, known resting endoscopy grades. Uh, and um, the majority of those, around 90, had exercising uh, laryngeal grade as well. So that's either on a, a high-speed treadmill. Actually, all of them are on a high-speed treadmill. And what were your main findings, and how do these translate into clinical practice? Yeah, so the main finding for the CT portion was that uh, reconstructed CT volume 
of the muscle correlates very, very closely with um, ex vivo volume. So it's a good reflection of the uh, actual volume of the muscle. Uh, and then for the transesophageal portion, the main finding was um, that we were able to detect muscle atrophy in both the mid-body and the caudal portion of the muscle uh, in horses with abnormal uh, function and exercise. So um, horses which are either grade three on a resting scope, um, on, that's on a four-point scale, uh, one through four, or a grade C on uh, at exercise. Um, and we also find that in the horses that were a grade B at exercise, the mid-body of the muscle was also a little atrophied compared to um, the caudal portion. So you've said transesophageal ultrasound has allowed you to make direct comparisons between the right and left CAD muscles. So mm -hmm. can you use it to look at other characteristics of an abnormal muscle, such as muscle fiber loss or fat accumulation, to further mm -hmm. assess its fun function? So we have not looked at that. Uh, I know that uh, a colleague, Justin Perkins, at the Royal Veterinary College, is looking at that for uh, using transesophageal ultrasound. And uh, Dr. Heather Chalmers at Guelph is uh, looking at that using, or has looked at that, and published on that using percutaneous ultrasound. Uh, that will be certainly very useful. As we know, we see uh, both fiber loss and fat accumulation with um, muscle atrophy. And there's also some more advanced dynamic uh, imaging methods, such as fractional shortening, to look at um, the muscle as it contracts. But that prob those probably will be, at least initially, experimental tools rather than uh, clinical ones. So how easy is it to perform transesophageal ultrasound? Um, and do you think it will become a standard modality to assess RLN? Uh, I think it might be. Uh, the main limitation is the um, transesophageal probe. Um, if you have a transesophageal probe, then it's actually very straightforward. It's no more difficult than passing a nasogastric tube, uh, which is pretty straightforward. Um, just passing the uh, transesophageal probe up the nose, getting the horse to swallow it, and then imaging the dorsal aspect of the cricoid cartilage and identifying the CAD muscle um, is straightforward. And imaging the whole uh, muscle, both left and right sides, is also pretty straightforward, as are determining thicknesses at a few key points that we identified. So I think it certainly could be um, useful. Uh, sorry, definitely would be useful. I think it, it's likely to start, as most things do, in the larger uh, referral centers, um, which many of which are already doing transcutaneous ultrasound. Um, and I think it's a nice uh, complement to that. You mentioned um, using standing CT earlier. Do you think the um, standing CT we have now will produce good enough images to assess the muscle geometry? Yes, I do. Um, the standing CT... Uh, with motion correction is working extremely well now in the centers that have that. Um, so I think the quality of the images is certainly capable of uh, detecting the boundaries of the CAD muscle and then so being able to determine volume. Um, I think that's going to be a very useful tool to track, uh, to do two things, both track progression of recurrent laryngeal neuropathy over time. Uh, there are very few studies that have actually looked at that and that's a key thing that we everyone is interested in. Um, so, uh, for example, the horses with a mildly uh, slight asymmetry, so a grade two on a scope sell at a large uh, discounted sales, mostly because of the fear of progression. 
even though 96 or so percent of those will have completely normal function and exercise. Um, people are concerned that there may, that may be the early onset of disease, and so we may see progression of that uh, horse uh, laryngeal function to a, uh, to a point of dysfunction at exercise. Um, so trying to uh, track which of those horses go on to progress to have uh, dysfunction at exercise and which don't is an important thing that everyone's interested in. And uh, these muscles, sorry, the standing CT is likely to be a useful tool uh, to do that. Um, it would also let us track uh, uh, muscle hypertrophy or, or recovery from muscle atrophy after some other techniques uh, such as um, nerve grafting. So what studies have you got planned to take this research further? Uh, really more data, um, trying, to, trying to increase. Uh, we, we're already increasing the number of horses that we have uh, in this in this study to extend it out, um, uh, and then to, to larger uh, case numbers, um, and then working with other groups to see if we can track uh, progression over time, and also to see if we can predict um, if we can use must changes in muscle geometry to predict predict the onset of recurrent laryngeal neuropathy clinically. Uh, so there's uh, quite a large amount of work. And now either published or about to be showing that recurrent laryngeal is uh, changes are present pretty early and before we see uh, laryngeal dysfunction based on a, based on a resting or um, dynamic exam. Um, and so if we could detect that early, we might be able to intervene before we end up in a position, end up, sorry, might be able to intervene with a more dynamic treatment uh, such as reinnovation before we end up with a uh, very fibrosed atrophied larynx. Uh, that's a few years away, but that's the long-term, uh, medium-term goal. I'm going to say medium-term. Well, thanks for um, talking through a really interesting study. You're welcome. Thanks very much that's for your great. time, Rianne. Thank you. Dr. Michaela Bologna is a PhD student at the University of Montreal, and her thesis is titled Airway Remodeling Reversal in Asthmatic Horses, Contribution of Anti-Inflammatory and Bronchodilator Treatments. The paper we're discussing today, which can be found online in the EVJ Early View section, is titled Environmental Heat and Airborne Pollen Concentration are Associated with Increased Asthma Severity in Horses. Hi Michaela, thank you for joining us today. Your paper investigates exacerbations of equine asthma observed on hot days as opposed to those commonly seen during the winter months. So can you tell us what the basic differences are in the predisposing factors seen during these two different climatic periods? Yes, so good morning to you, Rayanna. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, well, of course, during the winter months, horses usually spend more time stable compared to the summer months, and they are more exposed to the, all the antigens commonly found in hay and straw dust, such as in the toxins, mites, molds, and many other organic compounds. So when inhaled, these antigens trigger an inflammatory reaction into the lung of predisposed horses, and this is the reason why equine asthma exacerbations are commonly thought to be a winter problem. Uh, also during winter, cold-induced bronchospasm, uh, which has been demonstrated to occur uh, during exercise in horses, could be involved in the development of exacerbation. Uh, however, the role of this uh, mechanism in asthmatic horses uh, uh, remains to be determined. And uh, on the other hand, 
summer months are characterized by high temperature and humidity and by an increased quantity of airborne pollens, which could also act as a triggers for asthma exacerbation, but this still remain, this remains to be determined. So increased climatic temperature has been linked to increased respiratory efforts, altered breathing patterns, and ultimately respiratory distress. What's hypothesized to trigger these, these conditions? Uh, so, so hot temperatures could represent a risk factor for heat exacerbation, and this can occur uh, by several mechanisms. Indeed, increases uh, climatic temperatures can trigger a cholinergic mediated reflex, which induces bronchoconstriction, and this has been demonstrated in human asthmatic patients and uh, could possibly also occur in asthmatic horses, given the similarities between the two conditions. Uh, I have to say we also consider the hypothesis that increased the respiratory effort results from thermoregulatory strategies adopted by the horses to contrast the increase in temperature. Uh, but these may simply mimic asthmic exacerbation uh, in the presence of normal lung function. Um, lastly, we have to remember that uh, pollens as well as uh, have been implicated as triggers for the clinical manifestations of the summer form of equine asthma, which is the SPAOPD, and they could act as non-specific irritants for the reactive uh, airways of asthmatic horses as well. So why did you decide to perform this study in particular? Uh, yes, we, we constantly monitor our research horses, and um, on different occasions we observed unexpected worsening of the clinical condition of some asthmatic horses of our research herd, during uh, heat waves. So this was unreported in the literature and we wanted to investigate why this happened. And so we started from the hypothesis uh, investigated in this study that environmental heat can negatively affect uh, lung function in asthmatic horses. Okay, so could you describe your study design for us? You give a very nice depiction in your paper. So if you could just talk us through this. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, we investigated uh, retrospectively data already available in our laboratory. Uh, among several projects that we had, which is the one uh, with the highest number of horses among those with the longest and best characterized period of exposure. So, during this precise project, we had 14 horses with uh, RAO, which were stabled for six weeks starting precisely from the 15th of April of uh, 2014. And during this period, uh, the clinical scores of the horses were performed daily for the first five weeks. And then lung function was assessed on two days during the sixth week. Uh, on Monday, when the climate inside the barn was uh, 25 Celsius degrees and 60% relative humidity, which is what we considered the hot day. And then for days apart on Friday, uh, when the, inside the barn we had uh, 18 Celsius degrees and 61% relative humidity, which is uh, what we consider the, the cold day. Uh, so barn conditions were monitored daily during this period, and while uh, external environmental variables were obtained uh, retrospectively. So in the sixth week, you say you measured lung function parameters. Can you tell us how you measured the transpulmonary pressure, pulmonary resistance, and elastance? Yes, so to assess lung function, uh, we need to know three data. Uh, these are the change in transpulmonary pressure occurring during every breath, 
than the respiratory flow and the tidal volume. So to acquire this information, we used an esophageal catheter connected to a pressure transducer in order to measure the changes in transpulmonary pressure indirectly because we were into the esophagus. And also we use a heated pneumotachograph connected to a mask placed over the nose of a horse in order to measure the airflow and to calculate so the tidal volume. After this, all uh, these data were analyzed by a software. In our case, it was the FlexiWare software by Cyrex, but there are other softwares like this one. And we obtained uh, the measure of pulmonary resistance and pulmonary elastin than forever breath. Okay. And you also measured lots of environmental factors, temperature, humidity, pollen count, air enthalpy. Can you tell us how you measured um, these factors, especially the airborne pollen and spore counts, and maybe explain to us what air enthalpy is and how it differs to climate temperature? Yeah, so uh, actually, as it was a retrospective study, airborne pollens and spore counts Data were obtained from uh, specialized laboratories, which are named Aerobiology Research Laboratories, based in Canada, which perform such measures in a station located uh, um, about uh, 50 kilometers west from the stable where horses were housed. And uh, as for air enthalpy, it is an indirect index of heat dissipation uh, from a body to the surrounding environment. Uh, that is, the higher is enthalpy, the harder is heat dissipation for a body. And we use their enthalpy as a surrogate of the felt temperatures. Indeed, the felt temperature is, um, calculated, is calculated based on uh, human physiological parameters, which may be incorrect for horses, which is why we choose enthalpy. And uh, enthalpy is calculated using a complex formula, which uh, is reported in the online supplement of our article, in which uh, both temperature and humidity are however considered. So it's a complex formula where temperature and humidity are considered, but uh, that uh, consider as well the ability of a body to dissipate the heat. Okay. So to measure um, nasal and abdominal effort during breathing, which you assessed over the six weeks, you used an eight-point clinical score. Now, do you think this would be a useful tool for ambulatory practitioners, seeing patients several times a year, and maybe there's different vets seeing the same patient over long periods? Do you think it would provide a more non-subjective assessment of the horse? Yes. So the eight-point clinical score we used first of all, has been developed about 15 years ago by the group of Dr. Robinson at the Michigan State University. Uh, I, I think it's a very simple and practical way to assess the clinical condition of asthmatic horses, and we commonly use this score at our lab. Uh, and of course, it's used in practice would help uh, objectively describe the severity of clinical signs associated to asthma exacerbation, especially because this score has already been shown to correlate to lung function in asthmatic horses. So definitely, it's a tool which is precious for us as veterinarians. Okay, it sounds like it could be useful. So it seems that lung function was strongly influenced by climatic temperature, air enthalpy and airborne pollen. So can you tell us why these factors cause a deterioration in lung function? Uh, Yes, so our results indicated lung function in horses, as you said, is mainly influenced by 
sudden and marked changes of environmental temperatures, especially when horses are not in complete remission of the disease. Uh, we also show, however, that relative humidity could play a role as we identify a tendency of the clinical score to increase with increasing values of relative humidity. And then if you ask me why, it's hard to tell because we could not separate the effect of temperature and uh, of the load of airborne pollens. And also, as we said before, there is a, a heat-induced cholinergic reflex which, which uh, can be activated in these horses. But uh, as we did not uh, um, demonstrate that this occurs specifically, it's hard to comment on which is the mechanism driving to bronchospasm and which is the reason of the bronchospasm that we have seen. Okay. Normal horses, as you, as you um, t uh, described in the introduction, combat increased temperatures and hypothermia with a physiological thermoregulatory induced response by increasing their respiratory rate and their tidal volume. But you didn't find this in asthmatic horses. So why do you think this didn't occur? Yeah, so it's hard to tell, but I think that the asthmatic horses that we investigated and we studied were asthmatic horses already symptomatic. So they have already increased respiratory rate and decreased tidal volume. So I can imagine that it, it's hard for them to combat um, and increase them uh, to, to thermoregulate by further increasing their breathing frequency and further decreasing the tidal volume. I think this is the reason why we didn't see these changes in their breathing pattern. Okay. And horses were turned out um, during this time period for two to six hours per day. Do you think that the difference between two and six hours per day in a field could have contributed to the differences seen in pulmonary function? Well, we have to say that every horse is different. And in our herd, we have severely affected horses as well as mildly affected horses. So, of course, we cannot apply the same management condition to everyone. And when we expose them to antigen exposure for different procedures, we do that in such a way to guarantee a good quality of light in, in spite of the airway obstruction induced by the antigen challenge. And this means that the more severe horses will need to spend more time outside than the less severe horses in order to maintain similar degrees of airway obstruction. So I don't think this can be a bias for our results. So the condition that you're describing um, is asthma exacerbated by increased heat and pollen. Um, and other climatic conditions. How is this different to the summer pasture-associated obstructive pulmonary disease? Um, or are they the same condition? They are considered different conditions uh, if you refer to RAO and SPIOPD because now they, they stay under the big umbrella of equine asthma. However, SPIOPD usually describe horses that become symptomatic during the summer and while they are outside because um, and their exacerbation has been associated to an increased presence into, into the environment of pollens and spores of different trees. So this is SPIOPD. And uh, on the other hand, uh, horses with uh, what was called REO and now is severe equine asthma are horses that usually have exacerbation during the winter as their exacerbation are, are linked to an increased quantity of stable barn antigens 
into the air. So possibly pathophysiologically, they have they share similar mechanism as they are. They have the same clinical presentation. They have similar inflammation into their bronchial lavage. Um, however, there is maybe some different antigen triggering one disease or the other. So what management changes would you recommend horse owners carry out during hot weather if their horses suffer from RAO and it's also induced by increased temperature and airborne pollens? So, of course, providing an environment with good air quality and a good ventilation is crucial for asthmatic horses, independently of the climate they are experiencing. And based on our results, hot weather appears to be a further risk factor to consider for the recrudescence of asthma exacerbation. Uh, For this reason, and especially if the horse is already exposed to other triggers such as hay or if it's already experiencing signs of every obstruction, it's important to prevent sudden increases of the environmental temperature. And uh, this can be done, for example, if horses are kept at pasture um, by providing uh, fresh shelters or trees to protect them from direct sunlight in the hottest hours of summer days. Uh, if uh, the horses uh, instead are housed into a stable, um, the use of ventilators and their cooling may be implemented um, also, solution for the stable thermic isolation will help uh, preventing uh, abrupt temperature changes and may be considered by your owners. So what would your take-home message be for equine practitioners? Well, our study encourages veterinarians to warn their clients about the risk of heat waves on asthmatic horses and discussing with them about the possible solutions, especially for those horses kept stable for most of the time. And that we have to remember as vets that preventive medicine uh, is one of our best tools for the management of equine asthma exacerbation. Okay, well, that that was all very interesting. And thank you for um, taking time to talk us through it. Thank you to you, Rhiannon. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and make sure to join us for our August edition.